Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We could be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents the most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 34. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, a lot's going on in the MLB, but not really too much signing. We're seeing a lot of trades to kick off the MLB offseason. So uh, we'll start with the one bid signing we've seen so far. And that's Patrick Corbin, and surprise, the Washington Nationals kind of come out of nowhere, sign him for a six-year, $140 million contract, and, I mean, Corbin's got to be, like, licking his chops and everything, uh, because the six-years was the big key, but I certainly didn't expect him to get uh, near that $140 million contract. Uh, what's your opening take on the contract? Yeah, to me, the whole thing was very strange. Um I didn't know the Nationals were one of the teams that were in on Corbin until very late. Uh, it sounded like his decision was going to come down to either the Phillies or the Yankees. Um, both the Phillies and the Yankees have plenty of money to spend this offseason, so it's kind of shocking that the Nationals were out were trying were able to outbid them both. Supposedly, um, we know Brian Cashman was very very high on Corbin. We know Corbin grew up a Yankee fan growing up. Um, so it's just very shocking to see him go to the Nationals for, or for someone to choose the Nationals over the Phillies, who have a good young core and still has money to spend on a superstar, or a team like the Yankees, who are pretty much given a playoff spot, honestly, if they stay healthy. Um, you know the Yankees are going to be in the playoff mix. The Nationals, we don't know so much about them yet. You know, This is a Bryce Harper-less team. Um, I think they can still play good without Bryce Harper. Corbin definitely makes them better. But it's a very bold choice by Patrick Corbin to say, hey, let me choose the Nationals, um, a team that we don't know if they're going to be able to contend or not for years to come, over a team like the Yankees, who are in contention every year, and a team like the Phillies, who are young and hungry, and I can make them a lot better, when I, especially when I pair up with Aaron Nola in the rotation. From a money standpoint, like you said, it's very surprising. You just don't see these big contracts anymore. And honestly, you know, maybe I'm the only one here, maybe I'm the outlier, but I don't feel like Patrick Corbin has the track record to get this kind of deal. I certainly expected a deal around $100 million, but this extra $40 million, I just I can't fathom. You know, I, I don't like the idea of giving it to a guy like Corbin who he's good, but he's never been a Cy Young-level pitcher at all in his first couple of years in the big league. So it's just a little strange for me to see a guy like this get this big of a contract when he doesn't have the track record of someone like Zach Greinke, of someone like Madison Bumgarner. You know, to me, he hasn't proven he can be a frontline ace uh, on a lot of other teams. Uh, but I don't know. 
it's just you know, when you're a lefty and you're young and you're one of the very few lefties out there on the market, I guess you, you know, supply and demand, you take advantage. Yeah. For reference, he's 28 years old. He's pitched all of his years in Arizona. He went 11-7 last season with a 3.15 ERA, 33 starts, 200 innings, his only second time in the majors making it to 200 innings. And, I mean, the big stat that stands out, 246 strikeouts, his first time hitting that mark of 200 alone. So his numbers phenomenal last season. He was like a top five Cy Young guy. I don't really know exactly where he was. He wasn't in the contention of the top three. He certainly couldn't be much further out than five or six. Um, But it almost looks like this is a great pressureless move for Patrick Corbin. Because if you sign with the Yankees, six years, or they weren't going to offer him six years. So Five years, let's just say $120 million. There's a lot more pressure that comes with that. Because as you said, Washington, they were 82-80 and 80 last season. That was a full year with Bryce Harper. If they're without Bryce Harper, most likely Victor Robles is taking Bryce Harper's place. But that's still a downgrade, obviously, from Bryce Harper. Even adding Patrick Corbin into that and Jan Gomes, you, you don't say there's too much of a change in mark yet. But if you go to the Yankees, a lot more pressure. You're viewed as the ace. You're viewed as the number two guy. Patrick Corbin's the number three guy on a Washington Nationals team. Even when you consider him on the Arizona Diamondbacks, he put up probably better numbers than Zach Greinke did last season. But Zach Greinke's the number one guy on the Arizona Diamondbacks. So is it almost like this could be a little bit less pressure for a guy like Patrick Corbin as well? Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I don't think there's going to be less pressure from a fan point of view. I think if any fan sees that we signed you for six years, 140, the pressure is going to be there. But I could see where you're coming from about, you know, he's behind Scherzer. He might even be behind Strasburg in this rotation. Although, yeah, I mean, they probably would maybe do a a lefty-righty-lefty combo. Um, But there definitely is less pressure than when it comes to the Yankees. Um, But I don't know. I mean... Definitely, they still have a chance to win. Like you said, the Nationals did pick up Jan Gomes, um, as well as signing Corbin. So they're still expected to compete in the NL East. Um, but there's something about it to me where it's like, you know, I chose the extra year and the extra $20 million over potentially a given playoff spot with the New York Yankees. Um, I don't know. It just it, it seems very strange to me. I feel like if I was in Corbin's shoes, I would probably choose the Yankees. But that's just me because I'm a guy who wants to win. Um, I can't really speak for Corbin uh, and his, you know, his choice there. You know, we never, we never want to put words in someone's mouth or accuse him of just taking the money, unlike Zach Greinke. Um, but I could definitely see him maybe being comfortable and not being the ace when he was with the Diamondbacks um, and maybe him just transitioning that simply over. But, you know, even if he would have went to the Yankees, maybe he wouldn't have been the ace over there either. You know, they do still have Severino. They have Paxton. Um, so I can't see it being too much different if he went to the Yankees other than that there's significant playoff pressure all the time. So, one thing is, like, he's the first big free agent that has signed this offseason. He's not the biggest name free agent, but he is one of them. Dallas title was kind of waiting for Patrick Corbin to sign with the team, and this is a great example for Dallas uh, title. So, 
if you're tied, Dallas title, and he really hasn't been seemed as like going on uh, with team meetings yet. Uh, certainly, it's about that to return now that Patrick Corbin's gone. But what kind of viewpoint should you be looking at this if you're Dallas title and Dallas title's agent? Well, honestly, if you're Dallas Keigel, you ha- kind of have to be honest with yourself. You're not Patrick Corbin. And like I said, Patrick Corbin is not it, – it, it's it's weird because, da- you know, Dallas Keigel is a Cy Young Award winner. Um, he has potential to be a Cy Young Award winner again. But to me, he's not – he's a step below Corbin in a way. You know, Corbin is very high – you know, high 90s fastball kid as opposed to Keigel who kind of – he kind of does it backwards, right? Um, his best pitches are change-ups. He pitches at significantly less velocity. So there's two ways you can look at this if you're Dallas Keigel. You can say, okay – Six years, 140. I should probably be maybe like you said in a five-year, 120 range, or you know, six-year, 120. I should be getting less than Corbin. Or if you're Keigel, you're looking at it as okay, Corbin's off the board. I'm now the best lefty, not only the best lefty, but the best pitcher available now in free agency out of anybody here. And but also teams are not looking like they're ready to spend just yet. So if you're Dallas Keigel, there's two ways you can look at it. Either okay. When I get that big money contract, I have to take it because it might not be anywhere else. But also, I'm the best pitcher available. Let's see if I can milk this as long as I can and get the biggest contract I can get. I mean, the stats weren't bad. 12 and 11, 204 innings pitched, 153 strikeouts. So he's not striking out nearly as what Patrick uh, Corbin does. He's a few years removed from his Cy Young. But I still think he's still a great starter. And for most teams... He's an excellent fit, and there is playoff experience as well, and I think that should be valued, where I don't think we value that enough for what he's done in the postseason. Uh, I, I certainly think Dallas Tyler, uh, should be getting a large contract. I think he's looking at at least $100 million wherever he goes. But I, I think it's more I think he should be getting pursued by playoff teams, especially. Because he's not considered an ace on Houston, uh, but he certainly was putting up great numbers. He won a gold glove last season. I know it's a pitcher, but still. Uh, but I, I'm certainly, if Dallas Title's getting, looking at it right now, uh, Patrick Corbin signed. Like you said, he's now the best starting pitcher available. He's going to come at an expensive price. He is a little bit older. He is 30 years old, but I don't think that should be taken too far in effect. I still think he's getting like a four to five year deal minimum. Uh, Scherzer, Stratzberg, Torben. I mean, that's got to be a great one-two punch. In your eyes, is it the best one-two-three starting pitching staff in the MLB right now? You know, I think it's very, very close to what the Yankees have with Seve, um, James Paxton and Masahiro Tanaka. Um, I think they are just a little bit better, though, in terms of um, age-wise and and really just established starters, too. Like, Scherzer is an established starter. Um, I take him over probably anybody any day of the week. Um, Strasburg, you know, he's had his ups and downs, but I really trust Strasburg as well, too. And then, of course, you have Corbin, who's a pretty reliable starter as well, too. Sometimes Severino can be a little bit wild. Sometimes the big pressure of a game can get to him. Tanaka is usually rock solid with that kind of stuff. And for James Paxton, we really have to see. Um, you know, I don't want to say he hasn't pitched that many big games, but when you're playing for Seattle, um, there hasn't been that many big games there 
for a while now. So you have to question um, how he's going to step up into these big games for the New York Yankees. Um, <clears throat> at the top of my head, the only other that's really the only other rotation I can compare it to right now. Um, if you want to throw the Red Sox in there, but really they're only anchored down by Chris Sale. Um, so really, I would say maybe the Yankees are probably maybe right there with the Nationals, but I, I probably give the slight edge to the Nationals. So the only other team I'm comparing it to um, is not the Yankees. <clears throat> it's the Cleveland Indians. Uh, so Corey Kluber, Carlos Tarasco, Trevor Bayo, uh, all of them had th- uh, 200-plus strikeouts last season, but... In actuality, Jacob DeGrom's the best starting pitcher right-handed or starting pitcher in baseball. I think almost the majority of people are going to agree with that. Matt Scherzer is the second best right-handed pitcher in all of baseball. Going into last season, Matt Scherzer was pretty much the number one. Jacob DeGrom was right around there as well. But I think after what Jacob DeGrom was able to do, Matt Scherzer gives up a couple more home runs consistently. Um, but Scherzer is still one of the best two, three-starring pitchers in all baseball. Patrick Corbin's looking like one of the better left-handed pitchers in baseball. He finished fifth in the Cy Young. And Steven Strasburg is still one of the most dominant starting pitchers in all. Uh, This is, in my mind, clearly the best one, two, three. It will be interesting if starting pitching is able to, you know, put a team over the top. Normally, it hasn't in years prior. Uh... Example, Cleveland Indians, New York Mets. They, they're known for starting pitching, and it's just it hasn't always gotten it done in the past. So I don't know how well that will work successfully, but as far as the best one, two, three, I think Washington's got that right now. But with the sign of Patrick Corbin, does it kind of feel like it might be out of reach for the Nationals to sign Bryce, uh, re-sign Bryce Harper? Well, they did ask the Nationals about that earlier in the week, and I think that was pretty much the idea when they did sign Corbin. Everybody thought that automatically. Um, they did say that they do that they would like Harper back, but now it has to be at a price that they would like, um, which to me tells me that sounds like no, right? Because now they're saying that, hey, unless Harper you know, wants to take a, a, a discount, then there is no real plan for him to come back. And I think the Nationals feel confident with him not coming back. I mean, they brought in Young Gomes. I think they, you know, you and I agree that Robles is a good player. Um, we think he'll be good in the major leagues, too. Um, he wasn't no slouch in the minors. But like you said, he's no Bryce Harper. But can the Nationals still win with Soto uh, if he keeps building off of his impressive rookie year? They have one more year of Adam Eaton if they still want to go for it, slash Michael Taylor, who's not a bad player, um, plus a guy like Robles. And then plus, they have the infield still. That's still intact. Um, you know, so... The chances of them signing Harper, I'd say it's not likely, unless Harper wants to take a discount. Um, but I think the Nationals already feel confident with moving on from Harper as well. Yeah, I don't think Harper is the make-and-break moment for them. Uh, I th- I don't want to assume Victor Robles is going to be able to like you know fully take over uh, Bryce Harper, but a guy that could is Juan Soto. I mean, he certainly lived up to all of his hype and more. Uh, Anthony Rendon is another guy on a one-year left on his contract. He might be a guy they more try and re-sign than anything. And you still have guys like Trey Turner, Ryan Zimmerman. Second base, I think they're going to make more of a change to than you'll see in the outfield with Bryce Harper. Because second base right now, it's either going to be Howie Kendrick or uh, Wilmer Defoe. And I think you could see 
the Nationals try and sign a guy like Brian Dozier or a guy like Jason Kipnis. My 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 vote would be Brian Dozier. Uh, Daniel Murphy was m more of a of a replacement, better than uh, Jason Kipnis, and then I kind of view Dozier higher than both of them. So I think they'll go after Brian Dozier for second base, and be okay with the outfield as it is. Because Michael Turner showed fantastic speed. Uh, more of a guy that you could also put at the bottom of the lineup, Adam Eden. Health is going to be the big thing with him consistently. Even if he does get hurt, you'll have guys like backups like Howie Kendrick or Michael Taylor. So I think that's not too, uh, the end of the world. And, it, you know, it's always not a bad thing to take a chance on your young talent in the minor leagues. And Victor Robles is that kind of guy. And you've already traded for Jan Domes. You made a kind of moves with Matt Wieters in years prior. Now he's a free agent. So I really like what the Nationals are doing. And I think national fans, if you don't re-sign Bryce Harper, which I don't think national fans always had the idea that they were going to have Bryce Harper after this year. Uh, it shouldn't be viewed as the end of the world because of the moves that they're making. It's just a bullpen. They may have to make a move or two more uh, to complete this team further. And we're talking about the NL East, and it was, we're not going to be done talking about the NL East because there's a bunch of trades that also come up. But I want to get this topic going. Uh, when you consider the two worst divisions in baseball for the last, I don't know how many years, the only two come to mind for me are the AL Central and the NL East. And the AL Central seems to be at a point where it's going to even get further down the line. The White Sox have a great opportunity to win this division, and they're going to be without uh, their star prospect, who's in Tommy John surgery, and I think the White Sox lost 100 teams last season. Uh, the Indians could trade away Corey Kluber this offseason. I still think the Indians could win the division this year. So I, 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 obviously the AL Central is terrible at times especially, but the NL East, I mean, Jose, this has got to be a very exciting time with a lot of key rivalries for this division because of all the moves we're seeing these teams make. Yeah, I mean, I slightly disagree with the with what you said about the NL East um, being bad almost every year. The thing is, though, is that well, with I'm the NL East... I'm not calling it good. That, well, it's not good, but there's usually only one or two teams in contention. The, the AL Central, honestly, for the Indians, has been theirs to win for the past like six years, and no one else is competing. But for the NL East, it's usually just one or two teams until about mid-year, and then one of them falls out, right? So I agree with you there. But yeah, this is very exciting. When you have four out of the five teams, right, unless the Marlins decide to go out and sign Manny Machado, uh, four out of the five teams are going to be expected to compete next year. All of them have the same thought process like, well, we want to win now. You know, Usually a team like the Mets, for example, would be like, wow, there's three teams competing. Maybe we should start retooling too. But instead, they're saying, no, why are we backing down? Let's go for it. Same thing for the Phillies. They could very easily be discouraged about the year that they had last year where they played good for three quarters of it and then took a step back for the last quarter of the month. But instead, they want to go out there, they want to sign, they want to compete. The Nationals, uh, just like the Mets, could easily said, you know what, we're losing Harper, Zimmerman's in the last year of his contract, this might be a good idea to try and trade away some pieces. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to sign Rendon. Maybe we should trade Rendon and see what we can get for him. But instead, the Nationals go out there and sign Patrick Corbin. This is what you like to see when you're playing in a division. You want to see the competitiveness. You want to see your team beat the best in order to get into the playoffs and try and win the World Series, too. 
So from a fan perspective, it's super exciting. And But from a team perspective, it makes it that much harder to make these moves because if you miss out on somebody like the Phillies, they want to try and get Corbin, all of a sudden he goes to a division rival. If, the Philly, if Corbin goes to the Yankees, it doesn't hurt the Phillies as much, but the fact that Corbin signs with the Nationals now, that hurts the Phillies big time. Yeah, this is, I think, exciting. Obviously, I, I was laughing when you said Marlins possibly signing Machado. Uh, minus the Marlins, though. It's, it's a very competitive division. And one or two teams at plus 500, not that great. This should be a division that beats the living hell out of the Marlins, and all four of the other teams are very competitive. And I think there, there should be more of an excitement factor with that, uh, the Phillies, for most of the season, were either uh, leading the division or right there behind the Braves, and then they really fell off. And now we're seeing the Phillies are making a lot of moves. They have a ton of money to spend. We'll get into that uh, very shortly. Atlanta's coming off as a division winner. What have they done so far? They've signed Josh Donaldson to a one-year deal. I st- and they are talking to Michael Brantley. I think that's a must-sign for the Braves. He is a perfect fit for them. And then from there, they probably add a little bit more bullpen pieces. And they're as good as any team in the entire MLB at that point. Uh, the Mets were seeing made some moves, and I don't think that they should be done. Because if you're going to make a trade the way they did, uh, you're basically saying, we are all in and more, and that's not enough. So... They are going to be making a few more moves, and if they don't, I think Med fans should be very annoyed at that point. But, no, this is an exciting time for the National League East. I think all four teams uh, represent competitiveness, and for the Nationals, even if they do lose Bryce Harper, this has been the top team in the division for, what, the last decade, pretty much? Uh, So... You still give credit to them, and they still have phenomenal players on that team. And as we just spoken about, they could have the best three-man starting rotation in all of baseball. So you give credit to that as well. So this entire division seems to be a lot of fun. And I think for all the young talent that is around the National League East, which at the time was four of the top, like, five prospect shortstops were all in the National League East. And now we're seeing a lot of them come up. Uh, J.P. Crawford was the one that just was traded away in the uh, Gene Sidora trade. So there, there's excellent amount of talent on these teams, and it's certainly going to be a lot of fun watching the NL East instead of it being one of the bottom divisions in baseball in years past. Uh, the Mets traded with uh, Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. It's official. Uh, we spoke about that on the last podcast. I'm not, we're not going to really dive into that. Uh, it was just, it seemed to take a little bit longer than expected. You know, we were talking about like it could probably be done Friday, and then it was almost like announced a couple days later as official. So it was a little bit strange on that factor. But uh, one of the other big trades that occurred was the Phillies. They get Gene Sidor. And they added a lot of relief pitching money to their team in getting Juan Nicarcio, Anthony Swarzak, who was traded in the Robinson Cano trade and Edwin Diaz trade. Uh, and the Phillies are trading away Carl Santana and J.P. Crawford. So, Jose, first, your thoughts on the Phillies adding Sidora? Well, first of all, a great move. It's definitely an upgrade over what they had. Um, you know, J.P. Crawford, like you said, yeah, I still have hope for Crawford. I feel like he's going to be 
a good baseball player. I don't know if he's going to be a superstar player. So for the Phillies to go and get someone like Gene Segura, obviously the Phillies are in win-now mode, so Segura's age doesn't hurt you in a way here. Um, how long he's been playing in the league doesn't hurt you here. And Segura's one of those guys where he's really gotten you know, really good wherever he's been traded to, right? This is a guy that he was with the Brewers, then they traded him to the D-backs, and then they traded him to the Mariners. And like all in all, Segura is a really, really consistent player, right? So the Phillies did a great job. And then a couple of things that really, you know, that you realize after the trade is done is that with signing Segura, yes, Segura can play second, he can play third, but he's probably going to be playing shortstop. But So the questions you have to ask yourself is, does that take the Phillies added a running for someone like Manny Machado, who they were interested in. Um, granted, again, Segura can still move to third or something because the Phillies are willing to part ways with Franco as well, too. And obviously, Machado and Segura would be an upgrade over Crawford and Franco. But you have to think that, for now, maybe it takes out the Phillies out of the equation for, um, for Machado. What it does help the Phillies do, though, by getting Segura is that they also traded away Carlos Santana. Not only was that financially a good move, but also positionally a good move, because now it allows you to move Reese Hoskins from left field to first base and also frees up more money so you can bring in someone like, I don't know, Bryce Harper, if the Phillies want to really want to push for it. I feel like this trade was great, but with everything else happening around them, the Phillies are going to be forced to make a splash, and I would not be surprised if the Phillies go all in now on trying to bring Harper to Philadelphia. One of the big things for me about this trade is obviously you get an upgrade at shortstop. Gene Sidora is much better than J.P. Crawford. And, and that's a huge upgrade. But what I don't think we're going to be talking about as much is the Phillies were very bad defensively. And in a season long, that can affect you for a while. And that can be the difference between a couple games. Uh, a great point is, uh, is dribbled Herrera. Uh, who's their normal center fielder, lost his center field position because he struggled hitting after a while. And he's just not really a true center fielder. And they put in Roman Twin, who should be the starting center fielder, who should be almost the considered leadoff hitter for this team if it's not going to be Gene Sidora. Uh, so, and he's a much better defensive center fielder. Now as Drupal Herrera, who's not a great defensive center fielder, can move into a corner in, uh, outfield position. Hopkins goes into his normal first base position. So I think overall defensively, this is fantastic for the Phillies. And in outfield, that's Roman Twin, Azdrubal Herrera, Nick Williams. Uh, Williams has a lot of power potential. Uh, Twin has a lot of speed potential. Herrera can do a little bit of it all. I like that outfield already. But it does open up the possibilities of if they wanted to trade or sign Bryce Harper, if they wanted to add an outfield because they have a ton of young players on their farm, piece it together with one other player, and you can add a um, a, a top outfielder as well. Uh, they say they still have the money to sign both Machado and Bryce Harper. I would say don't prove me that. Prove to the people you sign one of them. You don't have to go out there and sign both. If you sign both, fantastic. You're pretty much taking over this National League East. But sign one. Prove that you can do that. If you want to still go after the other, that's all great. But start making the efforts to go after one. Because uh, this uh, trade opens up a lot of possibilities for them. And 
Yeah, that is the big question. Does it put him out of reach for Manny Machado, or will they have to offer Machado more money for him to take back the third base position? But there's there's a lot of opportunities, and I really like this trade for more than just the hitter standpoint upgrade at shortstop and a normal first base position. But defensively, this is going to be a, a great move for the Phillies long term. On the flip side, you know, who is the Seattle Mariners going to purge next? Because <laughs> this is basically what it's at at this point. They have sent away every single piece possible, and there's still more to come you have to figure. So, Jose, who, because you have to figure we still have plenty of offseason, who's Seattle trading next? Well, you know it's bad, Nick, when your mom is asking you questions about the Seattle Mariners, because my mom is a baseball fan, but she doesn't really care too much enough about the around the league about someone like Seattle where she's like, you think King Felix will be next? So when you have your parents starting to inquire about this kind of stuff, you know it's bad and you know it's a serious purge. But, you know, that is an interesting name, though, that she did bring up, though, was that is King Felix next? I don't know because his contract is just way too huge and he's been way ineffective that I don't know if teams are going to want him. So honestly, I think the next logical choice for the Mariners might be trying to move Kyle Seeger. Um, this is someone who signed that extension a couple of years ago where it was like, what, six years around 100 mil. Um, I still feel like there are a lot of teams out there that could use a left-handed hitting third baseman. Those are very rare, honestly, around the league. And teams that are looking at Moustakis, instead of trying to sign Moustakis to big money, maybe you make the trade for Kyle Seager instead. So for me, I think Kyle Seager is next. Um, if not, who knows? Maybe they try and shop around Jay Bruce, even though they already told Bruce he's going to be their opening day left fielder and their everyday left fielder next year. Um, maybe they try and trade Carlos Santana again. Um, I don't think the Mariners are, are completely sold with people who are getting who they are getting back, like these veteran players. I wouldn't be surprised if they try and shop them as well, too. Um, but again, I think if I had to take a guess, I'm going to think Kyle Seeger or maybe even D. Gordon could be next. Right now, you look at them and they say they added Carlos Santana and they added Jay Bruce. It's Highly unlikely they're trading either one of those players before the season starts. Uh, those are great opportunities to trade midway through the season where they've already taken off half their contract for this year. And then if the Mariners can eat some of that money as well for the next year or two, that that works for that. So I don't see those two being relevant trades. Um, but the name that I think that's going next is not a contract name. It's the player that they're going to have to trade with a contract, and that's Mitch Haniger. Mitch Haniger is basically the Edwin Diaz type moment, where if you want to get rid of, I think, Kyle Seeger, or if you want to trade away D. Gordon, or even like a Jay Bruce or Carlos Santana, unlikely they're trading either one of them, but if you want to trade the other two, especially Kyle Seeger, I think you have to include Mitch Haniger. And I think that's an excellent possibility with the San Diego Padres. So I'm going to say Mitch Haniger is the most likely trade piece Nets because I think that's what you're looking at. If you're a team that's trying to contend in the next couple of years and you have an open third base or second base position, you may be able to take on that entire contract of those players and it not cost you too much long term or... You can almost piece the two of them together, and I really like the Padres and Mariners making a trade with Will Myers and getting back Mitch Haniger and Kyle Seeger. I know it's going to be a lot of money that they're taking on, but Will Myers becomes a more tradable asset than 
uh, Kyle Seeger as well. Now, let me ask you, though, Nick. Um, there are executives with the Mariners that have said that if anybody is unavailable, it is Henninger, and that they want to build a team around him. But thinking about the timeline here, Henninger isn't exactly a crazy young rookie. Do you think that those timelines don't match up? Do you think the Mariners can actually rebuild this thing in time to help with contending with Hanninger, or do you think they're better off trading Hanninger too? You know, the timeline can match up. Uh, essentially, you look and say Justice Sheffield would have to be starting within the next year. Uh, the same would go for Justin Dunn, and that's two starting pitchers right there. Uh, if Depending on how well uh, Jared Twinnett does, and most expect him to be in the majors very quickly, he could take like a Dansby Swanson right. Uh, route and move up very fast uh, but all those pieces coming together I don't think that gives you enough and even like you didn't get much in the Phillies trade to consider J.P. Crawford and Carlos Santana enough to get you far, uh, further along so I don't agree with that uh, yes you have Mitch Hanager locked up for multiple years if you consider arbitration but to say hey three years down the line we're going to be good is very tough for me to buy into because they just don't have the farm system for me to buy that. Uh, so they have to still trade more pieces uh, for me to believe that part. So no, I do think Mitch Hanager will be traded. That's my next blockbuster. Uh, <laughs> speaking about blockbusters, yes, we're not done with trades. Uh, Paul Goldsmith. That, to me, blows our mind. Paul Goldsmith traded to the Cardinals, and the real reason is one year left on his contract. So he was going to possibly be dealt, especially if Arizona didn't believe they could resign him, and it's very tough to go and consider yourself as a possibility. But Paul Goldsmith traded to the Cardinals, the Diamondbacks getting back Carson Kelly, Luke Weaver, and I think a draft pitch as well. I don't know if there's bit, uh, other names, but Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver were the big names to it. Jose, did the Diamondbacks get enough in return? You know, honestly, I don't think they did for the type of player that Goldschmidt is. Um, I think Luke Weaver is a very good pitcher. I think he has a lot of good promise. Um, and I think that piece is fine. But when you look at some of the other pieces dealt in this trade, it wasn't a lot. For Goldsmith. But on the flip side, it's also only one year of Paul Goldsmith. So I kind of understand that in a way. I mean, if you're getting like two years or three years of control of Goldsmith, maybe you can get a higher package back in return. But for the Diamondbacks, I think, you know, they probably could have waited for a better deal this offseason or even through at the deadline because I don't think the Diamondbacks are going to contend anyways. But maybe it'll be maybe it's just easier for the Diamondbacks to trade Goldsmith now than it would at the middle of the season since Goldsmith is basically well, basically was a lifetime Diamondback. So maybe it's a little bit harder to trade him at the deadline, you know, emotionally as it would be now during the offseason. But I definitely think they could have gotten a lot more back for him. But then also on the flip side, like I said, you only are getting one year of Goldschmidt. So maybe this is the most accurate deal they could have gotten. I'm just very surprised. I didn't think the Cardinals were going to be in on Goldschmidt. I'm kind of, you know, I feel silly for not thinking about it. Um, this definitely does work. It adds to their great defense of Carpenter, Molina, and now Goldschmidt on their team too. And for the Cardinals, you know, they're a team that's trying to take back the um, the NL Central. An interesting stat for you here, Nick, since I know you love stats. Yes, Paul I do. Goldschmidt's, Paul Goldschmidt's numbers against the Cubs and the Brewers combined. 
363 batting average, 26 home runs, 77 RBIs, with an OPS of 1.158. So the Cardinals did their research and got the guy um, that definitely does damage against the Brewers and the Cubs. That also includes postseason numbers with those numbers. Did they get enough back on this trade? Absolutely not. Luke Weaver is 24. Carson Telly is 23. They chose, let's get years of players locked up, then talent. Luke Weaver had a 4.95 ERA. He made 25 starts. 136 innings, 121 strikeouts. There's a chance that you can improve from that. But 4.95 ERA stands out to me. This ain't going to drop a point and a half to consider it a great move. Uh, Carson Kelly, I mean, I'm not going to give him much hate. He's 23. He's not played that many years in the bids. And when he has, he's not played that many games. But he did play 20 games when Yadier Molina missed some time. And he had a, a 114 batting average. He struggled. In fact, in his three years that he spent bare minimum time in the MLB, from his 21 to 23 years old, he's not hit over 200. It's not great to buy into. And I don't agree with having a long-term catcher because they just don't always work out. There's not always consistent hittings with young prospect catchers. See Mets, for example. Um, I, I don't love this trade on the Arizona Diamondbacks standpoint, and it, I don't think it works for them. And I, I think Diamondbacks fans should be looking at as, you know, we didn't get much in return. And they didn't. They didn't really get anything in return when you consider what type of prospect St. Louis has. You got Carson Telly. I like Carson Telly. I think he could be good. I, could, I think he could be decent at uh, at some points. But a, a catcher and what could be a third best starting pitcher for multiple years, I don't know if that's a great deal for what is overall considered the best first baseman in baseball for one year. That's tough. That's tough to buy into. For the Cardinals, I, I, I guess they got to be celebrating this type of trade. Uh, and what kind of pressure should other NL team, NL Central teams be feeling? Well, I feel I definitely feel like the Cubs should be feeling a certain kind of pressure because the Cubs are a team that struggled offensively last year. Um, but also, the Cubs are a team that don't really have a lot of money to spend this year. When they picked up Cole Hamill's option, you know that was twenty million dollars right there. Um, instead of taking the chance to let him walk away and try and re-sign him to a lesser deal. Um, so the Cubs, you know, they definitely feel a kind of pressure because I feel like the Cubs need the Cubs know that they need to improve in certain areas, and we'll get to them in a minute when we talk about the um, the uh, well, well we'll get to them. We talked about them on the last podcast and how I said relief pitching really should be that priority, but they probably feel like they need to upgrade and not a lot of money to spend here. So to watch the Cardinals get better and not give away a lot of their minor league assets uh, has to feel very deflating for the Chicago Cubs, just from a competitive standpoint. And for the Brewers, I feel like, you know, they have a very solid team offensively. But again, this puts pressure on them to try and get better and get better pitching as well, too. Anytime you see your division rival getting better, 
it forces you to look at your weaknesses and be like, okay, maybe we need to step it up and try and get someone here to help us out in our area of weakness because the Cardinals clearly aren't settling just for Goldschmidt. Um, I don't think this is only going to be the only move for the Cardinals either. I, I don't think it should be. Uh, Goldsmith is, you know, not that expensive yet. But the Cardinals have a lot of problems. The, the Cardinals, I don't think, I, I think their big issue is like a little bit of the outfield. But Jose Martinez moves from splitting time at first base in outfield to being an everyday outfielder now. Uh, Dexter Fowler, I think, is still the biggest concern for me when you consider the outfield because he's locked in as an everyday outfielder for the Cardinals, and that becomes like the biggest question mark for them. Uh, when you talk about the Cubs, though, it's not that I think they need to upgrade because it's hard to upgrade from like Chris Bryant or Ian Happ or Javier Baez, uh, Anthony um, Rizzo, Wilson Contreras. I can go on and naming guys, but they have like the starting pitching set. They have their entire infield set. It's really the question mark is the outfield. It's like, are you okay with you know Jason Hayward because you can't move him and Kyle Schwarber as a consistent everyday outfielder for you? Because that's really what it is with the Cubs. They can't really add many pieces because they have all the pieces there. It's just is that you know the the best pieces of, uh, that you can have. Uh, the Cubs can only add relief pitching because that's the only thing that they need, and that's the only thing we agreed on was uh, that factor. But I think for the Brewers, I mean, this should light the fire even further. You finish with the most wins in baseball. You just saw your division rival, who's... Let's consider this for a sec. This was a very tight division race that the Cardinals were not out of at all going into last season. Uh, when you look at it and say, hey... The Cardinals finished 88 and 74. They finished eight games or seven and a half games behind the Milwaukee Brewers. They they weren't that far away. Seven or eight game difference, and you add a Paul Goldsmith to your team, that to me is a huge difference. Milwaukee's got to look at it and say, we got to add starting pitching, we got to add something uh, to help out our team, especially in the rotation wise. Uh, they also are dropping down from Mike Moustakis, so that this should be almost like for we're seeing like the intensity of the National League East, and a lot is going on there. I think the NL Central right there has to be forced to make more moves as well. Yes, going to stick with the NL, and we're going to stick with the trades. It really was an NL conversation when you consider all the activeness that the National League is doing with trades. And then, of course, we're finishing up our National League conversations. We started with the National League East. Last podcast was the NL Central. And now we're going into NL West. And we'll go from, obviously, last to first in the divisions. So we'll start with what always seems like the San Diego Padres. Uh, They've made already one offseason move, which was signing Garrett Richards. I don't know if we really spoke about that last podcast episode. He got signed to a two-year deal which is a great steal, except for the fact that he had Tommy John surgery in July and most likely won't pitch at all in the 2019 season. So this really means that the Padres are believing they are the pieces to compete in 2020. So this might not be really what are the Padres doing for this offseason for this year, but what should the Padres be doing for this offseason in years further? For the Padres, 
I'm going to compare them to a team like the Kansas City Royals from a couple of years back, right? The Royals had Hosmer, they had Moustakis, they had Lorenzo Cain. All the hitting was there. What they didn't have was the young pitching to match it, right? All they had was Danny Duffy in a minor league system. So what did they do? They signed guys like Chris Young, Edison Volquez, not very attractive names, but they paired it up with a really strong bullpen to help those guys out, and they were able to win a World Series just like that. To me, the Padres are almost the same thing. They have the hitting, right? Will Myers is a very good hitter. Fernando Tatis Jr. is expected to be a monster when he breaks into the major leagues. Hunter Renfro is pretty good. Austin Hedges is pretty good. You know, they have a lot of good, um, a lot of good young hitters on this team. What they don't have is the pitching. Like you said, they signed Garrett Richards, but they may not see him until next year. So what the Padres really need is to go out there and sign a frontline starting pitcher, which to me is where Dallas Keigel comes in. And I think Dallas Keigel will be a great fit in Petco Park. You know, it's on the West Coast. It's in a pitcher's park. He can really succeed over there. And he can really lead this rotation while the Padres try and sign maybe not just one guy, but maybe two or three guys for this rotation. And they don't all have to be aces like Keigel, but at least, you know, sign a couple pitchers here maybe a reliever from this strong reliever market to help shore up the pitching side of things. Because offense, they might be a force to be reckoned with. But if you can't pitch, you're not going to hold teams like the Dodgers down. You're not going to hold teams like the Rockies down. So pitching to me, in general, they really need to address, specifically starting pitching. There's a lot the Padres can do. And I believe the Padres have a lot of money. It's a willingness to spend. And they went out and signed... Eric Hosmer to a long contract. Will Myers is on a very large contract. What is uh, exactly their plan with Will Myers? Is he going to be their starting third baseman this year, or are they looking to move him into the outfield again? So I think that's like one of the big question marks to begin with, because if it is third base, okay, you locked up that position. But if it is the outfield, you have no one playing third base this season. I really like the Padres trying to make a trade with the Mariners. You know, if if I believe the Padres have the money, and I do believe they do, you can take away a piece or two from Seattle for not much of a cost if you're willing to take on that money. That's really the price of it. You can add a Kyle Seeger if you're willing to take the cost. I think if you can convince, you you could add multiple pieces if you're willing to take the cost from Seattle. Um, Really, I'd be interested to see if they try and trade a catcher. And Austin Hedges, because they added Francisco Mejia, uh, who was considered like a top-catching prospect from the Cleveland Indians last season. So I really like that move if they go that route. Um, you know, Kirby Yates is right now their closer. If they're not truly thinking they're competing this year, don't sign bullpen. Pitchers. That, that, that's, I think, is the biggest given. You can replace bullpen guys, whether it's trades, or you can get them in next off season. It may not be as great of a class, but, you know, bullpen is bullpen. You just need an inning at the end of the day. So I don't think they have to go that route, but I really like the, if they try and make a trade or two and, of course, figure out what they want to do with Will Myers. Uh, you know, the Giants made a lot of moves last season. They added Evan Longoria. They added Andrew McCutcheon. Now they traded. They traded away Andrew McCutcheon during midseason. The Giants are at like one of those teams where it's like we're not Seattle yet, 
but we're heading that route. So it's really do the Giants like sit back, do nothing, and then become Seattle or try and sign players? Well, you know, they're in a really tough spot as well, too, because and you're hearing a lot of different conflicting reports because there's reports saying that, oh, they can make a run at Harper, which would make sense, I guess, because they are on their spending spree. And, you know, Longoria is still a very good player in my eyes, too. I don't know how you feel about that. But they still have a decent team on the field with Brandon Crawford, Joe Panic. You know, adding a guy like Harper could help that. But then you also hear reports saying that they're talking to the Phillies about trading Madison Bumgarner. And you don't know which way the Giants are leaning. If I'm... If I'm San Fran, Nick, I don't sign Harper, and I go out there and I and I trade away the pieces. I think it's a good time to start fresh and clean. Um, you know, the way I like to judge it is how many people are being competitive in your division. Uh, it, to me, I expect the Padres to be better this year. The Rockies are always offensively going to be good. Um, you know, the Dodgers are the Dodgers. So that really leaves the Giants and the Diamondbacks, who are not going to be as good this year. So for for the Giants. Do you go out there and sign someone and get into a four-team race here, or do you want to try and retool here and try and come back stronger next year? If I'm the Giants, I think this is a year where you explore some trades. I don't know about trading Madison Bumgarner just yet, but if the right deal comes up, I think you have to do it. But I think for the Giants, I think it's just time to retool here. If I'm the Giants, I'm doing the opposite. I'm waiting. Because right now, the Marlins have JT Romuto possibly on the block. So do you want JT Romuto or do you want Buster Posey? The Indians currently have already the possibility of trading Corey Kluber. I think most would take Madison Bumgarner, but Corey Kluber, one of the best darn pitchers in all of baseball. On top of that, you can go out there and just sign a Dallas Keitel if you wanted. Uh, we saw the Nationals do the same with Patrick Corbin. The Yankees did the same with James Patston. Seattle's pretty much selling everything left and right. A lot of that's about the same value as it. And most of these guys, like Jay Bruce and Paulo Santana, kind of feel like the equivalency of a Hunter Pence. You already can't trade Evan Longoria. So with that in mind, you know, I wait. I actually try and sign players because if I look at it and say, you know, the San Diego Padres feel like they can compete in 2020, let's put that to the test and believe so. The Arizona Diamondbacks just said goodbye to 2019 and beyond. If anything, you can try and trade with Arizona if you wanted. But you still, at the end of the day, have pitchers that are Madison Bumgarner, Johnny Cueto, and Jeff Samargia, which aren't the same guys that they were in a couple of years ago, but it's still two aces when you consider Johnny Cueto. So I really like the uh, Giants if they continue to try and go out there and put up the best team available, because this is a big market team. They should not be looking to do the same thing that Arizona and Seattle are considering doing. They should be looking to go out there and sign players like a Bryce Harper, because I think a Bryce Harper could be the, t the move that puts this team over the edge. And I really like this team. And I only I think the Giants are only a piece or two away from competing for the division. So I'm going to take the opposite approach on you. A rare moment. <laughs> <laughs> Rockies, they made the wild card. Or, you know, they were part of that fighting group of it. 
as well. Uh, you know, we don't have to say much about their offense. Their their big question mark will be Nolan Arenado, who I believe is a free agent after this season. Uh, but they already have an ace in Kyle Freeland. What other pieces do they need? Because if they're considering going for it, what do they have to do? I think they need more pitching as well, too. Some starting pitching. Um, you saw it in the playoffs. After Kyle Freeland, they didn't have many options. Or should I say, they didn't have many great options. Um, I think a lot of their pitchers are still young. And I think, you know, in time, they'll be good. I am a fan of Herman Marquez, uh, who ended up pitching game three of the NLDS series. But overall, I think they need some experience in their rotation. And I don't know what their budget looks like, but I would love it if they try and went after a guy like Dallas Cayo. I know I want the, I know, I think he'll end up going to the Padres. I think it makes too much of a perfect sense there. But I would like the Rockies to see, you know, go out there and get a guy like that that can help stabilize their rotation. That could be a very nice one two punch, too, if you have Freeland and Kygo or someone like that. I understand finding pitching is hard when it comes to the course field effect, because you don't know how they'll fare there. Um, but for the Rockies, you know, offense, they're pretty, you know, they're always going to be offensive uh, with the team that they have because of their ballpark and because they have good offensive players. But the problem is, though, is that their pitching lacks significantly sometimes. So I put them in the same boat as the Padres. They're going to need pitching, whether it's starting or relieving. Uh, I like Tyler Anderson. He could be a decent four starter for this team. But overall, I think, you know, they do need a pitching. They need another starting pitcher. John Gray, Tyler Anderson, that's great if you're considering a four and a five. But they really need a mid-starter a mid starter in that uh, that staff. Maybe it's a Gio Gonzalez route. I really like him if he considers staying with the Milwaukee Brewers or the New York Yankees. But I think also you got to consider they need an outfielder. I think Cardo is a free agent and Geraldo Parra are both free agents. So what whoever they consider plays for space in Ryan uh, Mann or Ian Desmond, and then the, uh, the others got to consider possibly moving to the outfield. But there there is a few open positions on what they want to go on if they're considering their young talent taking over in the outfield with Charlie Blackman. But uh, Colorado definitely can use an upgrade or two in either the outfield and especially in starting pitching. But they have, like you said, Jermaine Marquez and Kyle Freeland. That's a great one-two to begin with and a very young, talented one-two, 25 and 23 years old. But they certainly need another starting pitcher in that rotation with them. And lastly, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers, who's been to the World Series back-to-back seasons, both years coming up short. It almost feels like the Dodgers have everyone on their team and a completely stacked powerhouse roster, but just never enough positions for all their players. So what is it the Dodgers got to do this offseason? Well, the Dodgers are a weird team, right? Because we know they're going to be there in the playoffs, right? Um, but we don't know how exactly. Um, for the Dodgers, though, um, I know it sounds like I'm saying a lot of the same things to the same people, but it's just true because every team always needs this. I think they need a better bullpen. I think they need more pitchers leading up to um, to Kenley Jansen at the end of the game. And whether that's bringing in a guy like Andrew Miller or bringing in someone like Adam Adovino, they really need help on the pitching side of things in terms of relief to get to Kenley Jansen. I don't feel like they have that many. I don't. I don't feel like they have too many reliable options, too many realistic 
reliable options. Also, a place I would like to see them upgrade is catcher. You know, you hear them about rumors being interested in Harper. Why the Dodgers should be in on JT Riomuto? Because, you know, they're letting Grandal walk in free agency. Right now they have Austin Barnes. Would it not make sense to flip Alex Verdugo, who at this point is an extra outfielder that is MLB ready? Does it not make sense to flip him in a trade to Miami for JT Riomuto and really give him a boost behind the plate? Uh, another bat in the middle of that order for them. Um, I think that makes too much sense. Yes, it'll make them very right-handed heavy, but Rio Muto could be a very good player that they don't have to platoon every day. Um, keep him behind the plate. He's an upgrade over Grandal that they had last year. He's an upgrade over Austin Barnes. And you don't have to worry about him and his bad defense behind the plate. They have the prospects to do it. So instead of spending money, why not make that trade right now if you're the Dodgers? Yeah, right now, Yasmani Rondell is a free agent. Uh, on top of that, Chase Utley retired. Brian Dozier is a free agent. Uh, Manny Machado's free agent. Uh, one of the big question marks is Corey Cedar when he comes back healthy. Uh, health is always seems to be the big question mark for the Dodgers because there's a reason why they have so many position players. It's because guys can't stay healthy. But if they, you're talking about an infield that could be Cody Ellinger, Mats Muncy, and then Cedar and Turner in the infield, they still don't have a catcher. They got plenty of outfield positions to begin with, with Chris Taylor, uh, Jock Peterson, Yasiel Pluid, Matt Kemp, Titi Hernandez. Uh, so I agree with you. They don't need all these outfielders when you go down the list. Uh, they don't need a lot of these backup guys in the minor leads. But it always seems like there's a ton of position players and not always the right talent in the uh, starting at times. So I think that's a little bit of the big question mark for me. They have seven starters. But how many of them do you actually trust? Kenta Maeda, I thought was going to be one of the more reliable starters, was in the bullpen by the end of the season. Uh, Ross Stripling, who was great as a starter for them consistently last season, was in the bullpen by the end of the year. So it's very questionable on what they're trying to do. And I don't think they're... I think they could win the division again, but I don't think they're a true, true playoff contender, even with Clayton Kershaw and a lot of postseason experience by this team. I Just on the fact that because everything seems to have to go perfectly right for the Dodgers to get where they're get, and I don't think that can happen three years in a row. As far as adding things, I don't know. Whatever they want at times. <laughs> they, they, they can they, do. They'll just throw cash at somebody. No one says no to them at the end of the day. Uh, would you, though? Would a good chance to make the playoffs? No. For the, for the money that they pay? They gave, like, what? Brett Anderson $10 million on a one-year deal. Brian Wilson, the bearded one they gave money to, and he was gone for, like, how many years? In, that, in that's their what defense, they do. though, in their defense for the Brett Anderson one, that was a, quali- a qualifying offer that they wanted him to decline. But <laughs> that was oh we 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 got called on a bluff. <laughs> yeah, basically. All right. Well, let's go into a little bit of college football. We haven't spoken about college football in a little while, and the college football playoffs are set. Number one, Alabama will take on Oklahoma, while number two, Clemson takes on number three, Notre Dame. Uh, I think obviously no one's going to say Alabama, Clemson, and Notre Dame didn't deserve to be there. Obvi- they were the easy three pits. Number four becomes 
the decent question mark where Oklahoma gets selected over Georgia, who lost Alabama, and Ohio State, who was right next to uh, Oklahoma going into that final matchup. And as much as I'd love to say TCU, TCU didn't have a shot, but they are moving up a little bit consistently. But did the committee get it right with Oklahoma over Georgia and Ohio State? No, Nick, because where is UCF? No, I'm just joking. Um, although UCF is moving higher on the charts too, um, so that's interesting. But no, I think, honestly, I feel like Georgia should have the fourth spot. Um, this is my problem with the college football playoffs is you know, I feel like everybody has their own criteria, right? You will look at things differently than how I will look at it. Someone else will look at how he wants to choose the four over how someone else wants to look at it. So I feel like the, you know, the, the committee has different standards as well, too. And I feel like these standards are not public. And so no one really knows how we're choosing things. And it's still very, very confusing. Also, I feel like this is where we would benefit from an expanded playoff because I think it's very hard to say, hey, only four teams deserve it. When, you know what, there was six teams that played great football. Georgia played really good football, too. So did Ohio State. I understand Ohio State not making it, but, you know, there's no reason why we can't do a kind of like wild card Sunday type of thing for the college football things with the top two teams getting first round buys. Uh, I mean, it's very simple. They can figure it out. They just don't do it. So I think a lot of teams get screwed over with the fact that we only have four teams in the playoffs. Like you said, the first three clearly deserve it. But I think Georgia does deserve to get in because, you know, their head coach said, you know, kind of said what was on my mind. If you ask most of those teams who are in the playoffs who they don't want to face, a lot of them will answer Georgia. And, you know, the head coach of Alabama said it himself, I don't want to face Georgia again, but that's the only compliment I can give them because Georgia does play Alabama extremely tough. It's just that Georgia chokes in the end like they did in that other game. Honestly, if you're going to punish Georgia because they lost to Alabama, that to me seems really, really unfair, even though that would have been the first-round matchup too. I think Georgia should have definitely gotten in. I'm going to say they, the committee got it right in choosing the worst game. Oklahoma deserved to get in. They didn't have two losses. Georgia you know, needed the win against Alabama to get in. And I had been debating this one whether which way I should go with it for a while, but this is what I'm going to go with. Georgia's probably a slightly better team than Oklahoma. Georgia definitely is going to be a more interesting game against, if it was Georgia versus Alabama in a rematch, would be far more interesting than Oklahoma facing Alabama. Because Oklahoma just cannot play defense. And they're going to play this much better offense than they faced all season long with their terrible defense. And not only that, they're going to face the best defense they faced all season with their great offense. So Oklahoma, I don't see having a chance in this game against Alabama. Georgia would have put up more of an interesting game. I think everybody will agree to that. But that doesn't mean they were the more deserving team. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about two losses and a team that's going to win their conference. And a team that lost consistently to you know, good teams as well, uh, and not a notable win, Oklahoma deserves to get in. And they and Ohio State, I don't think, had a chance after losing a terrible game. They lost. That pretty much cemented them 
out officially as well, even if they when they did win the fact that when Oklahoma won it pretty much cemented them done uh, so the committee got it right by the committee choosing what the committee does and the committee chooses win loss record over better team and the committee chooses you know if you got one loss you'll probably get in as that fourth spot or depending on how many teams go undefeated TCU um, I'm I'm gonna always throw TCU in until they lose the game, but the, this is this was an obvious pick by the committee. They they they're gonna go by win losses. They're gonna go by that as their big factor at the end of the day, and they're not gonna put a two uh, a two loss team in if they don't have to. Till every team loses two games in a single season, they're not gonna put a two loss team in. So the but does got that make right any on... sense? You're basically telling teams they have to be perfect for an entire season, which is hard enough to do, honestly. Well, three of them did it. Three of them did it, but two of them are like powerhouses, and they're always going to do it. You get you get what I'm saying? Like, like there's a difference between being Alabama, where you have the most star-studded players that you can recruit, and then being you know Georgia. You know, like it's just it's weird to me. I don't. Know. To me, to say, hey, you have to be perfect the entire year and one loss, let's say if you lose in week one, then you're done for it. That, to me, that's just very strange. I mean, if if Georgia wins against Alabama, Georgia obviously gets in. They're the three. And most likely, Alabama sits at the four seed. And Alabama is still more deserving than Oklahoma or Ohio State. And that we would debate whether Alabama deserves to get in, like we've done in years prior, uh, when they've beaten no notable teams. And that's always the factor. But the fact is, Alabama did beat notable teams when they beat like LSU, who was the three at the time. So they, they've won notable games this season. So Alabama, whether they won or lost um, against Georgia, they were getting in. So this was just for Georgia. They had a win in order to get in. They had the easiest thing that they had to do was just win the game. The problem was you had to win against Alabama, who was who was clearly the best team in the country. Um, you know, even like Nick Saban's rules, uh, Kirby Smart said, you know, uh, asked Nick Saban he won't want to play us twice, and Nick Saban said the same thing. He doesn't want to play Georgia twice, but when he ranked the teams, he ranked it with the same way the committee did it, which is he ranked the same four. Exactly the way it is, and then he put Georgia as the five. And so Nick Saban to... is the committee confirmed. Got it. No, Nick. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But like, I, I get what you're saying. Nick Saban and Bill Belichick are the same, and there's nobody that's going to argue that one. Nick Saban knows what the committee looks at. The committee is going to look at wins and losses more than strength of schedule. So Nick Saban sets his team up to play against. Not that great teams on the road, and when they do play good teams, they're normally home or they're in neutral ground. Other teams play notable, notable games, and that's basically it. It's 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 the same way like Bill Belichick knows about coaching and knows the NFL better than most of the other coaches. He just knows stuff around it. And when you ask players that are former Patriots players, it's like yeah, we know about that rule. We practice that. When nobody else knows about that, nobody else practices that. Why? Because Bill Belichick understands football far superior than everybody else. 
it's it's knowing what you're doing. It's knowing your job. And those two just know it better than others, know what the expectations are. So I, I have to agree the the committee did get it right by just the standards of what they set. We all knew where they were going with it. On another part, though, Kyle Murray of Oklahoma I believe, uh, has an interesting decision. So he signed a four. Uh, he's got a four million dollar plus contract with the Oakland Athletics after being the ninth pick in the MLB draft this year. His one requirement after with signing with the team was he wanted to play football for Oklahoma. I don't think, uh, and Oakland's biggest fear was probably going to see if Kyle Murray was going to get injured during the season, but no, their biggest fear now is he is fantastic as a quarterback, and he probably would be a top 10 draft pick, probably top 5 draft pick this year in the NFL. So if you're Kyle Murray, or in in, in a two-sport lead possibility, what is the decision? What are you considering here? But is he not already committed to the to the he, Oakland A's? He is committed to the Oakland A's. Uh, so the Oakland A's would not get a draft pick um, batch for him because he has signed. But he can still decide to leave to the NFL if he wants to? Uh, you know, it is tricky on this part because he could consider trying to do a two-sport thing. We see guys like Russell Wilson do it. That is true. Here's the th- I mean, it, it is complicated. But I feel like you've heard people talk about it. Everybody keeps saying Kyler Murray is a smart man. And I, I believe, I forgot who said it. It was in a very notable, notable player the other day. He said, how many football players, how many football players do you know plays for 22 years? So barely anyone. So if Kyle Murray wants to get paid and set up his future very nicely, he's going to choose the MLB. Why? Because that's where the money's at. Everybody knows that. No football players get paid $140 million for six years like Patrick Corbin did. Only baseball players do that. And I... I do think Kyle Murray is actually taking a bigger risk by choosing baseball than people think. Um, because, yes, the money will be there when he signs his rookie contract. But if he doesn't pan out in the minor leagues, he's not going to get paid anything. He'll never sniff the majors. And by that point, he'll probably be too old to transition back to football. Who's going to take a chance on a 25-year-old QB who hasn't played football in how many X, you know, X amount of years? So I think it's a bigger risk than people think. If Murray chooses the baseball route, if I were him, though, I choose the baseball route because one, you won't have to worry about as many injuries that you would on at the football field. You know, example concussions, and two, you'll have a longer longevity of, an, of a, a playing career. You know, assuming he doesn't get hurt, and the money will be there for him if he chooses the baseball route if he's able to succeed. Uh, Stop, Boris, his agent. Of course, and yeah, yeah, the money will be there. <laughs> Said he will be in spring training, uh, which is great. I believe that. I, I believe that after the season ends, Kyle Murray goes straight to spring training with the Oakland A's to practice with the team, to possibly go into, uh, to probably go into the minor leagues. But that still doesn't change the fact that he could get drafted in the NFL. Uh, if he wants to declare for the draft, if he wants to make his decision, I, I think obviously he's having – He's had a conversation with Scott Boris on this, and probably Scott Boris is saying exactly what you're saying. Look, at the end of the day, you know, you could make that amount of millions playing in the NFL, uh, but you can make guaranteed millions playing in the MLB. 
And he, he's a top 10 pit. This is not a, a pit that I expect doesn't pan out in the MLB. It's, it is, it's rare to see a guy of that caliber not pan out. Because how many times do we go through the top 10 and it's like, oh, there he is. There's that one. So I do expect him to pan out in the MLB. Um, you know, this this is also like a fame thing. If if you're a quarterback in the NFL, you're a bigger name than whoever you are in the MLB. And, and that's what I truly believe at the end of the day. You know, Mike Trout or Bryce Harper are two of the biggest names in baseball. And I, I think as far as like common po- uh, public knowledge of their names, they are not as big as you could say. Eli Manning, and where does Eli Manning rank as in talented quarterbacks? So I think that that's just an equivalency of like, you know, if you want to go for fame, fame is not always in the MLB. Guaranteed money, uh, financial security, and safety of your health, that's in the MLB though. So it, it is going to be interesting to see what comes of this. But, you know, this is also a great thing that he should go to spring training. Because if he doesn't pan out, or it doesn't work for him in spring training, and he's just like, you know, I can't hack it right now. The draft is later on. He can still go to the draft. So I, I, I think this is a great safety precaution for him to consider uh, go to spring training, weigh your options, and he essentially betted on himself, and he's going to continue to bet on himself with playing out a few more games in the NFL, go straight to spring training, see how you do against MLB players, see how you do against minor league players, and see what your options lie ahead. And if you want to try and be a two-sport player. Hey, if you get drafted by the Raiders, you're already in the same place also. So, I mean, it's not even that far of a movement for him. This is true. Yeah, and it's a high possibility, except they do have a quarterback. So we'll see what happens on that factor. Um, all right, jumping into the NFL, uh, we're going to start our topic off with Kareem Hunt. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything we're not both going to say. Obviously, what Kareem Hunt did was extremely wrong. There's multiple different things coming out of Kareem Hunt with fighting and uh Obviously, the video is ter- uh, terrible. And the Chiefs did the right thing. Cut him early, throw him on the exempt list. He cleared waivers. Teams aren't looking at him right now. Maybe that will change later on. Who knows? But I want to just, on the NFL standpoint, does this feel like you're never going to feel like this was right, or you're never going to feel like they did enough, but this occurred in February, and they knew about it, and they knew about the other incident that occurred in June, and it's almost like you could make a case on this that they said that they were building a case against Cream Hunt, but it almost seems like now they're truly building a case against him. This I seems mean, a little bit off, and it seems like the NFL only took action once the video got came out. Th- that's what I'm saying. It's like you, you were building a case, but you didn't put him on the exempt list until the actual video came out. 
So to me, what that tells me is you knew about it and you were hoping that the video never came out. That's basically what you're telling me if you're the NFL. You're saying, okay, we're going to sweep this under the rug. And if someone finds out about it, then we'll take care of it. Well, we did find out about it because the video eventually came out. And this is the same mistake that the NFL makes over and over and over again. Instead of taking action on something like this, just deal with it when the time comes up. Because now this makes you look bad too. And from an image standpoint, it doesn't make the NFL look very good. It looks like you're holding the ratings and the Kareem Hunt jersey sales. You're holding that higher than the actual incident that happened, right? Because if you handle this back in February and Kareem Hunt gets hurt or whatever, there's a lot more there's a lot more drama around the Chiefs at the start of the year. There's a lot less attention about how good the Chiefs are doing and more about, oh, what happened with Kareem Hunt in the beginning of the year. There's no Kareem Hunt jersey sales at all this year, right? If there was any. I don't know the numbers specifically, but I can imagine they were pretty high because he was playing so good again, right? So once again, the NFL took the money road and decided to cover themselves up by not doing anything, when in reality, they probably just should have taken it and handled it from the beginning. It almost like they don't take the... And I'm not going to say any any league gets it right, because they don't. They at don't. At the end of the day. Um, and it's always worse, and, and it's never enough of a punishment. And But I'm also not going to say, like, you know, you should never play the sport again. So I, I, it's a very tough stance on where to go with that part, but you know the MLB at least will. You, know, you hear about it, you pretty much know a court case. Uh, the MLB is making a case; they're already putting in a suspension, and guys are getting fifty games, thirty plus games, uh, like twenty-five to a third of the year is completely suspended, and that's what we're consistently seeing on the MLB side, and. Much faster action taken when it comes out. It doesn't always occur immediately that they're, but you know they're getting suspended pretty fast, or you know they're getting put on. I, I don't want to call it an exempt list, but it, it it's, it's another case where the NFL clearly is not doing it in the right direction. But it's also I I kind of feel that Kareem Hunt doesn't have a job right now. Because of his position, not because of the incident. Uh, Reuben Foster got cleared off waivers and was immediately signed by the Washington Redskins. Uh, what was it? Dwight Hardy was another one where it was oh, of the Dallas Cowboys immediately signed. His own teammate, Tyreek Hill, had an incident, I think, back in like 2015 when he was in college. And the Kansas City Chiefs took a lot of heat when they drafted Tyreek Hill for this. And obviously, if you have two players on your team, like it doesn't look great. And I'm not saying one has to go, but what I am saying is a star wide receiver compared to a star running back, one is easier to replace. So I, I think a lot is taken on this because of his position in the NFL than actually the video that goes out. Yeah, I think... Because if it's a star quarterback, is a star quarterback getting off a team like this? No. But if 
you know, let's compare this to the infamous Ray Rice, you know, incident too. Video came out, NFL barely does anything. More comes out, and eventually he gets suspended indefinitely, never plays again, right? Mm-hmm. Kareem Hunt is significantly younger than Ray Rice when that stuff happened. So Kareem Hunt still has a lot left in the tank. I think if it was Ray Rice now and ex- exactly went down at the age of Kareem Hunt, I think you see Ray Rice back in the league, you know, eventually. Um, but I do think, I, I expect Kareem Hunt to be playing by next year for a team. I think they'll let the rest of the season play out, let the heat die down, and then eventually you'll see Kareem Hunt, Kareem Hunt get picked up by a team. I think from a team standpoint, teams are going to look at him and be like, hey, this guy still has a lot of years left in his career, still a lot of young talent left, let's go get him, why not? I think it's a running back, and if Elliott would have been kicked off his team, I don't know if Elliott stays on. I, I I think it's just that position. The running back is a very replaceable position because it doesn't stay healthy, and that's the only reason why we're seeing as it is taken this way. But the NFL, I think we both can agree, they didn't take the right stance. They should have done something in February, and especially when you know about the June incident – this is still before the season starts. You can handle this in the right manner if you're the NFL before the season starts. And I'm not saying there's a right way to, there's not always a right way to handle this, but there's a right way to put your foot down. And it's like, okay, we will not stand for this. We know about this. We are not letting you step foot on the NFL field until you've served a suspension, until you, you know. And that's what the MLB's done a couple times, and I think like Jose Reyes and Jerry's familiar uh, stand out to me on that one, where it's like that happened in the off season, and they didn't start the season off. Uh, Chapman, I think, was another one like that, where it happened in the off season. They're not playing game one. They're not on the opening day lineup. So I, I there, there's just. Uh, the video teams out and the NFL then takes action. And I think, I don't think we should be giving the NFL anything of saying, hey, this was a great job by the NFL. No, this was a terrible job by the NFL. You knew of two or three things, and now you're saying you're building more of a case because of this, and it could lead to a lengthier suspension of Kareem Hunt. No, you're going to want this to die down for a long time before you even consider putting out a suspension. Because the last thing you want it to be done is talked about during playoffs or talked about during the end of the season. Um, so no, I, I don't. I don't see anything happening in the in the near future by the NFL because that's just not the NFL style. And I think the NFL completely got this wrong. And again, oh, I think we easily both agree. Cream Hunt is obviously wrong in this factor. Um, there, there, there's there's nothing good. In, in situations that come of this, there's, there's nothing right of it. Uh, but one thing that is right is you know, suspending a player, putting him on an exempt list, and doing that immediately. Not waiting 13 weeks into the regular season, seven or eight months later, uh, because of a video coming out. That, that, to me, is completely off. Going back to the games, though... <laughs> uh, Chargers beat the Steelers 33-30, coming back behind 16 at half. But Jose, are the Chargers the most underrated team in the NFL? You know, they really are. And I feel like, you know, they don't get enough credit because of the division that they play into. You know, everybody's talking about how bad the Raiders are or how bad, you know, 
the how underachieving the Broncos have been, but no one ever talks about how good the Chargers have just been playing now. You know, like no one talks about how Philip Rivers, you know, honestly, maybe not for a lot of other people, but on my list, I can make an excuse to find a way to put Philip Rivers in my top five for QBs in the NFL. I know a lot of other people don't feel the same way, but I feel like I can make an excuse to put Philip Rivers in my top five of QBs. Um, that's how good he is and how underrated he is, too. Melvin Gordon is a great running back. Their defense is pretty good. So I think, and you know, and they always get outshined by somebody else. So I think if the Chiefs weren't doing fantastic as they were, the Chargers would get more love. But the fact that you still have the Chiefs in the same division as them is what makes it pretty dicey. And again, once again, they get overlooked. And then also with how bad Oakland's doing, that, you know, it's, it's crazy to say that they get overlooked by a losing team. But you do, because you're, you're saying, wow, the Raiders have been so bad this year, but you're not talking about how good the Chargers have been. You know, this was a really important win for the Chargers. Because looking at their schedule, the best teams the Chargers have beaten this year is Seattle and Tennessee. They're, they're, they're 9-3, and three, and they might be the most underrated 9-3. and three. And just like you... Philip Rivers most be, might be the most underrated quarterback in the NFL. They only have three losses. One is Kansas City the first week of the season. The Rams the third week of the season. And Denver three weeks ago when they led 19-7. to They lost 23-22, to a last-second field goal, won Denver the game. Now, you can say that the Chargers haven't beaten that many teams, but what they have done is when they've played the games they're expected to win, they win. And then this is their toughest challenge. They come back down 16. They're without Melvin Gordon in this game at halftime, and they come back and win it. I mean, th- this is a great win for the Chargers, and it still keeps them in the hunt for not only, obviously, playoffs, they're in a great spot, but for the division. They're only still a game back behind Kansas City, and we, we talked about Kansas City almost the same as we talked about the Los Angeles Rams when it comes to them leading the division, where the Rams have clinched the division, and Kansas City's just up one game. Kansas City could drop all the way to the fifth seed in just a matter of moments from going to one to five. So I, I truly believe that the Chargers are extremely underrated, but they also they just haven't played that many great teams. They play a great team like Pittsburgh on the road, and they pull off a win like that, that to me is very impressive uh, for the Los Angeles Chargers. And, you know, we have to give them a lot more credit. Uh, And they're not going anywhere right now. They are a true threat because that could be the, you know, first-round playoff matchup. And getting a win like that already in Pittsburgh early early in the season, that's sometimes exactly what you need. Uh, So that's a big win for the Chargers right there. Yeah. Not a lot occurred too much in football, but I mean I am gonna cave on one more uh aspect and breaking this down again for you. Jose Eagles, Dallas Cowboys playing against each other this week. Who you got winning this one? I am going to roll with the Eagles. I just as, <laughs> as well as Dallas is playing, you know, one of the Eagles players earlier today commented saying that the Cowboys always choke. Uh, 
and that they're going to go in there and make them choke. He's not wrong, Nick. The Cowboys do always choke in certain big situations, you know? Whether it's Tony Romo or Dak Prescott, that's one thing that hasn't changed is that they don't show up to the big moment. And this is a huge game that's coming up. And I can't say with 100% confidence that the Dallas Cowboys are going to go in there and take care of business. I think if the Eagles, obviously, we wouldn't be in a situation if the Eagles would have lost a couple of games. But with the Eagles playing, you know, decent football, too, as well lately, this is a game that I think the Eagles win because Carson Wentz is a better quarterback. And the defense for the Eagles has potential to be better than the Cowboys, too. It's amazing I'm still a Giants fan. <laughs> uh, one thing I like to be is right. <laughs> so I always root for that more than I root for fandom. Um, no, I'm giving it to Dallas. Dallas is, I think, like 5-1 and one in Dallas this season. They've been very impressive. They're coming off a win against New Orleans. And I, I the one thing that kind of concerns me is that, like, that high point when you win that really, really important game, you always play a little bit sluggish because you come back down afterwards uh, the following week. Uh, Minnesota's a great team to look at on that one. They beat New Orleans last season on the miracle catch, and then they just were not there against Philadelphia at all the next week. Uh, no, I'm taking Dallas. Dallas has played phenomenal these last four weeks. They, they can they can. Continue to do the same game plan, run the ball with Elliott, control the clock, uh, keep their defense on the field as little as possible. And when they are in the field, they're very aggressive. They're great defensively. I think you could see them really beating the Eagles this week. And Philadelphia kind of, you know, I expected a better game out of the Eagles in that Monday nighter. Uh, they kept it very close with Washington until the fourth quarter started, and then they were trying to, then they sort of broke away from the game. But that's only because, like, Mark Sanchez started playing the damn game. I mean, I mean uh, and, and Washington doesn't want to sign Colin Kaepernick. They want Mark Sanchez. They deserve to lose. Uh, that's basically my thought on <laughs> You want Mark Sanchez to start. You don't want to try and sign a Super Bowl uh, quarterback that's gotten to the Super Bowl. You deserve to lose every single game the rest of the season and have him run up another lineman's butt. Um, lastly, uh, the Monday Nighter. It's Minnesota versus Seattle. This uh, huge playoffs possibilities with both of these teams being currently the fifth and the sixth seed for the playoffs in the NFC. Big matchup ahead in Seattle. Do you have Minnesota pulling up the upset or is Seattle getting the win? I have Seattle getting the win. Now, this is a team I can get behind. They've been playing consistent football. Russell Wilson's one of the best QBs in the NFL. Kirk Cousins is another choke artist, in my opinion. I feel like the Vikings, you know, they put a curse on themselves when they brought in Kirk Cousins spending all that money this year. Um, I think the Seahawks have just have a lot to prove. Um, the Vikings have been underachieving all year. Um, so I think the Seahawks get in. I'm going to take the opposite approach. I'm going to try and buy into Kirk Cousins one more time. I, I kind of thought he was going to be able to pull off the upset in Minnesota. Uh, and not in Minnesota, in New England. Uh, that did not go that well. Uh, I'm going to say he pulls off the upset in Seattle on Monday night. Uh, you know, it's it's a very good defensive line Minnesota has. I think they're going to be able to stop the run game 
of Chris Carson, of Penny, as well as Russell Wilson trying to run the ball for a couple times. Uh, to me, I think the big, that's the big key of how well this defense can do in this game for Minnesota. I think they'll keep them in their game. And, you know, obviously the better wide receivers are on Minnesota. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Turk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings because I believe Turk Cousins will not let me down again. I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, clearly I put a lot of thought uh, into that one. All right. Um, as always, we do a dude of the week and dunce of the week, and we go back and look at Beard Bat, and we're going back on December 6th. And really, there were two big ones that stood out to me. In 1992, San Francisco's 49ers, Jerry Rice catches NFL record 101st touchdown. And as well, the San Francisco Giants sign a record deal with the former Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder Barry Bonds for $43 million. I mean, that's what chump change now in the MLB. Uh, so, but Barry Bonds signing a huge contract in 1992 with the San Francisco Giants, obviously, Barry Bonds. The all-time home run king? Question mark. Asterisk. <laughs> uh, but both big uh, moments into sports as well. And our dude of the week, Jose, you are not going to like this dude of the week because of last night's game. It's Paul George. Boo. <laughs> It was going to be between Russell Westbrook, and I didn't give it to him, who had 21 points, 15 rebounds, 17 assists. He he outplayed the triple-double of Westbrook. Paul George, 47 points, 15 rebounds, 25 points in the fourth quarter. And, of course, the three to put the Oklahoma City Thunder up by two with just three seconds left to go in the game. So poor old George is our dude of the week. Well, for Dunce of the Week, it's going to be the judges for that Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury boxing match. Um, a lot of people were looking forward to that fight. This is a battle between two great heavyweights in boxing that we have right now, if anybody pays attention to boxing still. Tyson Fury got knocked down twice and unbelievably got back up twice. And a lot of people were saying that he won the fight. I tend to agree with that as well, too. Him getting knocked down twice doesn't necessarily mean that Wilder won. But yet, for some reason, the judges decided to make it a draw. Again, this is not the first time that we have some controversy. Remember Canelo and GGG, when they teamed, when they um, fought earlier in the year, they also went to a draw, too. And to me, it's just not surprising that this happens in boxing. I think they do it on purpose. Um, think about it. A lot of money went into this fight. Why not get a quick rematch and make even more money? Because you know, as mad as people are, that, there's gonna be, that it was a draw. You know that people are going to tune in for the second fight to see who actually wins this one if we get a real winner um, between the two. So my go, uh, my dunce of the weeks are the judges for the Wilder and Fury fight because I slightly believe that boxing can be a little bit corrupted. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> have a great weekend. <laughs> and on that note, uh, I-, I think that includes almost like Jose's final thoughts for the, uh, the uh, show as well. Uh, um, final thoughts for mine, not too much, um, but I'm just going to stay with keep your eye on the Denver Broncos. 
sits and sits playing the two and ten San Francisco 49ers. To me, that's a very interesting game, uh, and including a two and ten team. But on the Denver factor is really what I'm looking at. Now, sits and sits, and they have a great chance of getting towards the playoffs, even with uh, still a game behind the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, but that's that's the key right there for me. It's the Denver Broncos. Uh, but, Jose, what is your final thoughts? Uh, like you said, a lot of good football games. They have a lot of implications on the standings this weekend, so keep your eye on that. And, again, if you are a fan of combat sports, even though I just totally crapped on boxing, um, <laughs> if you're a UFC fan, there is a huge pay-per-view this Saturday. Um, UFC 231, Max Holloway, the defending featherweight champion, going to be taking on Brian Ortega. These two guys are the best in the featherweight class right now. Um, just a little backstory: Max Holloway is on a 12-fight win streak. Brian Ortega is undefeated and on a six-fight win streak. So a lot to lose here in this weekend. Also, another title fight for UFC on the same card is for the women's um, the women's flyweight title: uh, Valentina Shevchenko against Joanna Jonjacek. I believe, don't quote me on this, but if John Jacek is able to win the flyweight title for the women's, I believe she might be the first UFC women's fighter to be a champion in two weight classes. She used to be the strawweight champion. So as the boogie woman, as they call her, if she can claim the, um, the flyweight title for the women's division, she could be able to be the first women's UFC fighter to hold a, a belt in two different weight classes. Um, so that's pretty extraordinary too. Um, However, my picks for that fight, I think Shevchenko is going to get it done. Um, she's moving down to her natural weight at 121 for the fly, uh, 125 for the flyweight title. So I think she gets that fight done. And I love Max Holloway. I love Brian Ortega. So it's very hard for me to watch two fighters that I really enjoy watching go against each other. But I think it's Brian Ortega's time to claim the featherweight title. I got to go with the Gracie boys. All right, Jose, breaking it down for us in the fight. And- oh, as well, Nick, I forgot. We didn't touch upon it. But while we were doing our podcast, breaking news did come out that Nathan Avaldi did sign with the Boston Red Sox four years. I believe um, it's four years and estimated to be about in the $60 million range. So I know you're a fan of Nathan Avaldi, Nick. Yeah, I don't get it. I, I don't get the hype. <laughs> well, we talked about it. I think this is one of those cases where somebody did really fantastic in the playoffs, um, and he's getting rewarded for it. I remember a couple of years ago, Marco Scudero had that great playoffs for the Giants, signs a big contract, and what does he do for the rest of his tenure in San Fran? He sucked. It just happened. Although, to me, to me, Evaldi does, you know, he is a good pitcher when healthy, but I think there is a lot of injury concerns, you know, surrounding him as well, too. So, But a lot of teams were interested in him. The Yankees were interested in him, too. So, Evaldi uh, has, like, one key thing that I can't deny, is he's got one of the hardest-throwing fastballs in all of baseball, but he really doesn't have a secondary pitch. He doesn't stay that healthy consistently. And overall, there's like that time where it's like, oh my God, for two weeks, he's untouchable. And then for the other six months, he can't get it out. So The man threw 97 <laughs> pitches in relief, Nick. Pay the yeah, man. <laughs> he's a starter. <laughs> he deserved a bonus for that. that, that that's the same as, um, oh, what's the raised guy that does it? Every every week he comes in and it's like oh, uh, it's like Fer- uh, Fernando Rodney or, or or Sergio Romo starts the game off and throws one inning, and then the Rays have a relief pitcher come in and throws minimum like seventy to ninety pitches. Who's really the starter for the team? Yeah, yeah, I can believe that too. 
I, I, I'm not buying the hype of Nathan Avaldi, but it will be an interesting move. It certainly helps the, uh, the starting pitching at the back end for the Boston Red Sox uh, at the end of the day. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard podcast, episode 34. Uh, once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm talking beard, Jose Rivera. And good luck to all of you in the fantasy football playoffs. It's certainly a tough moment, uh, questionable moments with uh, Melvin Dorton, AJ Dreen, James Conner, uh, Emmanuel Sanders, uh, all injured right now, Kareem Hunt issues. A lot of those players I named around my fantasy teams. <laughs> uh, so I'll give you one replacement that I know all you guys are looking for Samuels, for Connor, and no idea for Sanders. Uh, Zay Jones of the Buffalo Bills. I'm kind of high on him this week. I think he could have a big week. He's had two out of his last three games with touchdowns. Last uh, The week prior, he had no catches. So... He used to be a hit or miss, but he's playing the New York Jets. I really like him as a possibility of doing well and storing a touchdown, having some bid yardage, and putting up the consistency we saw the week prior. And thank you so much for listening to Saras on the Beard, podcast episode 34. El nuevo crispy chicken sandwich de McDonald's es... Crujiente, tiernito, jugoso. Es pollo en la McDonald's, un mordisco y... Es el nuevo Crispy Chicken Sandwich. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's. Para, pa, pa, pa. En McDonald's participantes.